You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me is Mr. Ben Buckingham. Good evening. Also with us is Mr. Martin Kessler. Hello, I've been listening for a while, so thank you for having me on. This week we are looking at Carol Kakinia's The Ear. Did I say that right, Martin? Uh, Well enough, yeah. (laughs) Apologies for the way I pronounce things. It was one of the filmic casualties of the Prague Spring Uprising and the invasion of the Soviets. The film was locked away for 20 years and only began screening after the Velvet Revolution and had a screening in 1990 at the Cannes Film Festival where Kakenya was nominated for a Palme d'Or. The film is a paranoid tale of a night after a political purge where our main characters, Ludwig and Anna, argue while learning how they became the subject of government surveillance. Of course, we'll be spoiling the film and as much as you can as we go along, so please be warned. Ben, had you seen this film before you agreed to be on the podcast? I had. This was actually one of my first introductions to Czechoslovakian cinema. Um, I was very fortunate about... 10 years ago, I think it was, maybe 12, uh, the local Melbourne Cinematheque had a season of Czech surrealism, had such titles as Daisies and um, Valerie and a Week of Wonders, um, some Spunkmeyer and The Year. I'm glad that I saw it like that in that mix because on the surface it doesn't necessarily appear to be a surrealist film, but it definitely has strong connections to their reaction to modernism and it really shaped how I read the film and how I experienced experienced it and it's so long ago uh re-watching it on an old dvd I'm trying desperately to remember how beautiful it looked in 35 millimeter because a lot of the copies that have been out there are not so high quality you come away from a season like that and you've instantly got a handful of top favorite films ever with Valerie and Daisies but the ear was the one that I really sought out and I hunted for ages and ages and you just could not find it. It was killing me because it was the one that Daisies and Valerie are so over the top and imaginative and flying in different directions, but there was something about the ear that just is like being nailed to a cross and you never quite leave that experience if you're not ready for it and you see it in the big dark cinema and it just I was still stuck at that cross I needed to see it again and I finally found it one day completely randomly the old second run print well when it was well out of print in Australia god knows how it ended up in this DVD store and uh yeah I've watched it a couple of times since then and each time I revisit it I just get sucked deeper and deeper in and those nails haven't come out yet how about you Martin what's your history with the film This is a pretty new film for me. I think I've only seen it for the first time last year. I just ordered it as a blind buy through checkmovie.com. A lot of the Czech films I had seen were sort of recommended by my parents. uh, So that was a lot of the new wave films. And because this one was blocked from release, I guess I didn't really know it existed for a long time. But uh, I was really caught off guard by how confrontational the film was and being sucked into this dark, paranoid, subversive world. It's a really startling film, I think. So I've been looking forward to talking about it. Yeah. 
Yeah, this one was pretty unfamiliar to me. I'd read about it for a long time, though there's not that much written material about this film. There are a few really good articles about it, but it's not like it shows up as much as, you know, the the other films that you mentioned, Ben, as far as Daisies and Valerie in her Week of Wonders. I mean, even Case for a Rookie Hangman has more written about it than this film. So it was kind of uh startling to me to see this movie and just to see the depths of it. And it's interesting that you saw it in a mix of surrealist films because I wouldn't necessarily put it in that mix, though, as you're talking about, I'm like, okay, I can kind of see how that works. Yeah, definitely its relation to technology and how technology shifts our ability to be human. But this is kind of like the inverse version. It's the, it's the where we've got a lot of, you know, surrealists who are often like pushing against, trying to utilize technology to dig deeper into what is humanity and what is what what makes us what we are what about dreams what about our imaginations this is like what happens when it's turned against us so much like how the dreams of modernity were about oh look what this technology can do for us to make life easier to make life better and then the nazis turned it into a massive killing machine that just annihilated life and destroyed all these dreams of modernity then this film shows how, though similarly how these kind of on a smaller scale these technologies can be used to annihilate the human existence, to shrink it and constrain it. And so that the, it's, 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 like I said, that the opposite of that, of the surrealist dream, but it's still so affected. It's like, it's like if the surrealists became a fascist government and used the technology that they had to create the opposite of, you know, creative, creativity. And like I said, it's, it's sort of tenuous, but it's, it's, it, there's something there that it's like the, the warning, the flip side warning of what the surrealists promised. It's a really audacious film that they made this basically while there were Soviet troops on the street is how the story goes the copyright on the film just fyi is actually 1970 though a lot of people say this was a 1969 film i don't know if that was when it was processed when it finally was completed i found it very interesting watching even the credits of this movie that there seems to be a little prelude before the credits begin and then it finally dawned on me it's probably because this was never screened in the original days and there were no production company logos or anything that were put on here so we've got 20 seconds where it is just music happening before the credits begin proper although that does sort of set the mood for the film right off the bat and i think even though it was completed in 1969 or 1970 it's probably set a little bit earlier maybe early 1960s there's some of the references i think you're meant to not take it as a post uh, soviet invasion story I, I think it's meant to be a little bit earlier than that but there's definitely elements where you can see why they weren't able to release it at that time. I, I'm shocked that it was completed at all. I would think that something like this would probably have been shut down during the production stage because it holds up members of the Communist Party and makes them look ridiculous, corrupt. There's uh, you know, absolutely nothing you know, romantic or idealistic about these people. It's, it's uh, uh, subversive. Again, I, I think that's one of the key elements of the film. And just to add to that comment about it fitting in with the surrealists, like there's nothing maybe overtly surrealistic in the way that you'd think of, uh, you know, a Louise Bunwell film being surreal, but there are certain subjective qualities. You're not sure where the paranoia of these characters 
expands to and where it's it's justified you know sometimes their paranoia it's it's completely justified other times you know maybe they're taking some innocent detail the wrong way is somebody asking about you know how's your house during the winter it could be an innocent comment or it could mean that uh, somebody's going to have your house when you're gone these sorts of things the way the mind runs away with it you know you're definitely in kafka country watching this film so it it does in a way fit in with the surrealist films yeah well just on your first note there i think maybe the only reason it didn't get sucked down was because the country was being invaded <laughs> everybody was too busy elsewhere to notice some little film being made in up in the corner um and they might have gotten lucky by them but yeah up when i found out that it was banned straight away it was just like yep that um, the, i don't need any explanation for why the film so states exactly why they would have banned it out right because yeah it is subversive i think doesn't even cover it the subversive uh implies something underneath this film is like a shotgun to the face of, <laughs> of communist <laughs> ideology <laughs> yeah overt some yeah <laughs> yeah but I, I think also that your second point is is spot on because like see at the in the first in the early scene as as um as anna gets out of the the car and we see a car reversing with headlight headlights off. Um, she says, "Oh, perhaps some people involved in a little hanky panky," and it's this. It, it sets up this interpretation of data, which not only applies to how they relate to the government, but also how they relate to each other, how relationships function. Uh, do you know? Do you interpret some behavior of some person as they're cheating on you? Is that they only want to love you because of your money? Because they, you know, you you don't know every everything that we do in a relationship is all about interpreting based on our past experiences. And so the film really brings this to the foreground as they as the couple both you know argue with themselves and struggle to understand their position in relation to the government. I think that's one of the brilliant things about the film is that blending of the sexual anxiety and the interpersonal relationships with uh, political paranoia and making a larger statement about these systemic problems in this uh, autocratic communist regime. Maybe some viewers might not realize that the car, it's specifically a Tatra 603, which was exclusive to the communist elite. So right off the bat, seeing the car pull up, you know that these two characters are upper-crust communists. And uh, it's also the same car you see outside watching them at several points throughout the film. So it it tells you something just right away, uh, the model of car that it is. And I think there's a truck at the end of the film. It's a different Tatra uh, 805 military truck trying to look like a postal truck with the wire sticking out of it to listen to them. So there's certain things like that that I think might might be obvious to some viewers familiar with the time and place, but maybe not to people who are watching this film for the first time with English subtitles. Even as someone like myself in Australia who knows a reasonable about, about what was going on at that time, but doesn't know so much those little details, if you know them, it doesn't necessarily increase or reduce the paranoia. And if you don't know them, it doesn't necessarily increase or decrease the paranoia. It's still kind of like... Because they could just be there dealing with the neighbors who have also been dis- or have been disappeared and who they, th- and now this, uh, our main couple here that they also maybe disappeared. So there is this like, is it us that they're after? Is it them? Is it the neighbors who they were listening to? It's, it's very much the, uh, Jeremy Bentham's panopticon where it's, you know, the all seeing eye. So you never know when it's looking. 
there are so many films that we've talked about on the podcast before where there's a metaphor that gets used during this period of time and throughout the 60s where we're looking at how the Nazis treated Czechoslovakia. In this film, it is not the Nazis. We are not talking about Nazis in this film. We are directly confronting communists, which is yeah, again, it is very risky. Like, how are we doing this? Because normally you go, okay, we're going to make fun of the Nazis. We will talk about the Nazis. We will, perfect example is the fifth horseman is fear, where you are playing on all of this paranoia about the communists, but you are inserting Nazis instead. And this one, yeah, we have the guy from Russia who we see at the party. We've got all of these upper level people from the communist party. And we are directly head-on looking at this. Now, I had heard that Kachinya and Prokaska, Prokaska in, in particular, had a little bit of a carte blanche as far as the idea of being a little bit more open with their critiques, because apparently he had an upper party member who was a friend of his, and he was kind of protected. So they were able to make things that were a little bit outside of the norm. And also Kakanya being a member of what they call, uh, what was it, like 1957, class of 1957. So he was able to, uh, he was a little bit of an older filmmaker as opposed to like a foreman or some of these other folks that were more Czech New Wave. He was a little bit of an older generation. So they kind of cut him a little bit more slack, but... I can definitely see why this was banned, because it just takes on everything so directly. Prokaska, he might have even have been friends with Novotny, who was the head of uh, Czechoslovakia before Soviets rolled in. Supposedly, Prokaska, he was a little bit complicit and was not critical when he had opportunities to be. And then only as uh, things started to crumble, you know, later 19... 67, 68, he started to become more critical. So I think in some ways you can see a little bit of a self-critical, semi-autobiographical element in this character, Ludwig, in the ear. Kakina and Prokaska, they had made um, uh, several films before, and they, they hadn't quite had the same sort of political outspokenness. I, maybe their most famous film is uh, Coach to Vienna, which is uh, sort of classic war thriller type story. They had also made a film, but it's it's got Ruszynski in it, and it's sort of about uh, alcohol dependency. And it's interesting to see maybe that element come back here and how it actually fits in with the political situation. You see people, depending on alcohol, behaving like alcoholics, uh, partly, I think, as a way of coping with the political circumstances. And you see, it's not just specific to the main characters, but to other communists you see throughout the film. The alcohol also becomes a way to hide things. Oh, he's just drunk. Uh, as we find out later when they realize when they get visitors who appear to be just turning up for a drink, and then they realize it actually come to finish the bugging job that being interrupted. So it's like, even at the party, it's like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm too drunk to talk or something. You know, nobody says something like that, but you get the feeling of that is that everybody's just trying to like, to not have a conversation that might get them in trouble. And one way to do that is to, to be drunk. Kaska's, uh, history, the, um, the book, uh, All the Bright Young Men and Women, which was written by, I'm going to butcher this again, Josef Skrovetsky. 
if I may quote from it, um, he wrote that uh, Jan Pokaska appeared from nowhere at the end of the 50s and as a protege of President Novotny, he quickly made his way not only into film but also into the top echelons of the political hierarchy until he became a candidate member of the Central Committee of the Czechoslovakian Communist Party. It is not known why Novotny, who had a phobia towards intellectuals, took a liking to him. According to one version of the story, he originally confused him with another Prokaska, which is one of Czech equivalents of Smith or Jones. This would indeed be in the tradition of good soldier Sveik. Another version has it that Prokaska has delegate, was delegated to a Congress of Communist Youth, where he attacked an important official, not knowing that Novotnair himself was, about, was getting ready to liquidate the wretched comrade. In the middle of Prokaska's Philip Novotny entered the hall, listened to the speech, and when it ended, kissed Prokaska on both cheeks in front of the whole audience. This is how Prokaska received the attribute which distinguished him from other Prokaskas, Jan Prokaska PP, or President's Pet. So, yeah, it certainly sounds like he was on the inner circle and very much like, and when you hear this this talk of that, I... I, in other sources, I generally see it written that the names had been mistaken, and it feels more like that is the one that uh, Jan might have preferred because it makes him innocent. But hearing the story of him having openly attacked a comrade who was then liquidated very much echoes uh, the lead character in the ear who has, you know, thrown his boss under the bus by forcing him to to sign a, a, a contract and a, 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 a deal over a brickworks that his boss didn't want to sign and who has now been liquidated himself. So, yeah, certainly he's, it, this feels like him working out some personal demons and I think that's part of why it is so blatant that, it's almost like, you know, the, the, the person who has done wrong running out into the battlefield to save someone knowing that they'll probably get gunned down and not caring because they need to do something to change what has happened in the past. I want to talk about the way that this film is actually set up because we really have two films going on. We've got, which makes it into a mystery. We've got our main storyline, which is happening, which is two people. Uh, Anna and Ludwig after a party and we pretty much start this whole movie in motion with them arriving from this party and they find, like we were saying, they find that the power is off at their house. Uh, Anna can't find her keys. The phone is out. So all of these things happening at their house and these two Going at it, and I've seen this film compared before to Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, and you talking about the alcohol kind of brings that up a little bit more. I mean, when she comes in finally into the house, first thing that she does is go into the refrigerator and pull out a bottle of vodka and just start swigging out straight from the bottle. And we've got that storyline, and then we cross-cut that with what happened at the party. And I think that the editing of this film is so well done and just the pacing and the, the, the writing that gave us this to say when we were going to cut back to the party and learn more information. It is just so well put together that it keeps me riveted, even though it could be kind of a dry story. Yeah, the flashback structure works very well. I think part of it is the visual approach to it too, where the flashbacks are these very brightly lit overexposed moments, which are done uh, largely in POV. You sort of get the feeling that it's the character Ludwig 
trying to think back, reflect back on this uh, party and reinterpret events. Maybe he's overlooked things. Maybe some things have greater significance than they might have at the moment as his uh, paranoia grows. So there's a subjective quality to it. And then you have the present, which has this quality of existential dread. It's very darkly lit for a large portion until the lights come on and it's totally overexposed, but they're walking around with this candelabra. It looks like a expressionistic horror film for a large portion of the film. So you create these two different moods and the contrasting of them, I think, creates this interesting tension. The scenes where it flicks back to his memories when he's hiding in the toilet at the castle and it's such just a blanket, overexposed, white cleanliness reminds me of like a David Cronenberg horror film that it's almost like this surgical horror that he's waiting to be operated on that he doesn't know what they're going to take from his body, from his being. And they have such a starkness, like you said, against that darkness of the home that is just, it, it is quite, it's startling and it does create a quite terrifying mood. Really reminded me of the cremator and the actual morgue and where the bodies are being drained of their blood. You know, it was just so stark and so clean. And that we're cross cutting that bathroom with his bathroom at home, which again is completely in darkness, lit by candlelight. And he is in such a panic in both places. In the clean bathroom, he is, or the, the overlit bathroom, he's ripping up the picture of him and his boss. And then at home, he is they're tearing up all the the reports that he can get his hands on and trying to flush them. Even this is kind of broken up at home because the, it's very noir-like when the lights are off. But it's not only noir-like in the visuals, it's also their costuming as well. Like he's still in, they're both still in the costumes from the party or she's removed most of hers and in her negligee and she looks very much like the femme fatale of the noir and he's in, you know, the white collar with the black tie and it's just, you know, very, very, very noir. But almost it's immediately as soon as the lights come on and suddenly she's in a dressing gown and he's in a sweater and it suddenly switch ships into like a melodrama mode in, through their clothing and through the revelation of the house. The comparison to The Cremator is a good one, I think. You mentioned earlier that many films used occupying Germans as a sort of metaphor for the communist regime. But I, I think also there might be some allusions to the German occupation in this film. They're very subtle, but at one point when he's coming in the house, he says, my God, and you start filling in certain gaps and I you know this isn't explicitly in the text of the film but I, I really wonder watching this if maybe he was a informer or a collaborator with Germans they uh, explain that he's very much an opportunist and he he's not really anchored to any ideology he's a person without ideology the main character Ludwig you know his wife says that he danced for Benesch who was the um, president before the German invasion. He sang for Gottwald, who was the Stalinist era Communist Party chairman of Czechoslovakia, who uh, he died just a couple days after Stalin. I think people joke that uh, whatever Stalin died of was catching. But you get the sense that he's somebody who kind of jumped from regime to regime, uh, you know, gradually trying to socially climb. And he's kept certain things under the rug uh, to be in good standing with whoever's in power you know, he's probably responsible for his brother's death, his brother who was in England, probably during the war, where a lot of Czechs went to England. At one point, she mentions that he initially wanted to make a capitalist factory and 
married her for her dowry. So he's uh, somebody who I, I think is ideologically very weak and kind of weaselly. Uh, that, that's my impression of the character. So even if it's not explicitly stated, I, I think of the cremator, the way he kind of falls down this course. I, I think that at that case, he really, that character really believes in that ideology and sort of goes mad. You know, he's told that, oh, just one drop of German blood is enough to make you German. And by the end, really seems to believe that. In contrast, Ludwig, he's uh, uh, he's a he's a weasel, <laughs> which, you know, people talk about uh, these evil regimes. I think there's this impression that the, you know, fanatics were in charge. And really, I, I think the backbone of, the, you know, most evil regimes are the spineless. I, I think one thing I always heard growing up is that the true believers got it the worst. And when you discuss the joke from the Milan Kundera story on this show, I, I think people are going to see in that film how uh, the uh, true believer communist character gets it maybe worse than anyone. So uh, by the end of the film, one of the revelations I think you have is that, uh, you know, they hear, as you find out, everything that he has to say and all the sturdy laundry getting aired and he's not punished for it, he's rewarded for it. So I think it shows how that system, it's broken, it's sort of built on people who are afraid to say anything other than the party line, that they're useful, you know, I mean, again, also, it was common for people to, you know, be informants for the Gestapo, and then later informants for the communist secret police. So I think he's that kind of a character. Yeah, that boy uh, talking about that reminds me of uh, when an Australian filmmaker, Philippe Mora, whose parents were involved in not many things in um, during the Second World War. His his father worked with uh, Marcel Marceau in getting children out of occupied France, and uh, Philippe Mora made a documentary called Swastika, that like a found footage documentary of footage from the Nazis. It's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, there was, it was, and that was the first time that anybody had seen the home movies of him and Eva Brown, and it caused this massive uproar at Cannes when it played because people said, you cannot show this. It humanizes him. But that exactly, like, that's, that was Moore's point was to, to, to humanize him, to show that Hitler was a monster, yes, but he was also a human, that he had a home life, that he had people that he loved and cared about, and that it's so important to hold on to that. Because if we lose sight of that, then we won't see the next round of monsters that come through because we're looking for something that doesn't exist, some giant evil boogeyman, instead of just recognizing that it's either just crazy weirdos like the Kremator or it's spineless shit like this guy. Philip Mora, he's got some of the best audio commentaries out there, no matter what people think of his more commercial films. But I remember his commentary for The Howling 2, he talks about filming in Czechoslovakia still during the communist era. He's joking about these uh, Czech extras he's found to cackle in the film, saying, oh, they're they're so sinister, these Czech extras, they're sinister without even trying. So I, I think there's a sinisterness to us, maybe. One one of the lead uh, Czech actors in it is the young boy from the Cremator. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah, I actually just watched it again two weeks ago, and my partner pointed that out. He's like, wait, isn't he? And we looked at I was like, yep, yep, there he is. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm a big Philippe Mora fan, so I, I, I think he's he's, he channels a lot of this kind of stuff very interestingly. One film I 
was reminded of watching this is Alexa Garman's Crustelia of My Car, which is also set during a purge. And that's stylistically much more extreme, but there's similar visual motifs with the, uh, you know, string of uh, communist elite black cars doing off to going off to do no good at night. And uh, again, the, the sort of drinking and this idea of people in a very high positions falling very low and the kind of sense that the closer you are to power, the more dangerous it becomes. It's also set during a purge. And of course, his films often had a history of uh, being shelved, much like this one. I think Trial on the Road was shelved for many, many years. And his uh, uh, 20 Days Without War and the, my friend Ivan Lapshin were also shelved. So it's interesting to kind of put Ukol next to one of those films and just think about the critiques that uh, were going on at the time and what was <laughs> not not allowed to be said yeah, I think actually one of the most fascinating things that struck me watching it this time that I'd never thought of is how much it has in common with um, Patrick McGowan's The Prisoner's TV series. Um, certainly that leans a lot more into the surrealism, but there's a lot of that, you know, the constant observation and listening and not knowing where you stand. Also the purge aspect that he has been purged from being quite close to power at the beginning and is now trapped in this weird limbo, which is very much where we leave the characters at the end. And obviously, you know, McGowan would never have seen this film, but you know, you put prisoner and this on one after the other and there, there is a lot of connections there too. So it's, it's certainly something that was, it was felt throughout Europe at this, during this period, I think. Going back to what you said earlier, Martin, not to jump ahead too much in the movie, but when it comes out, all of these things that Ludwig has done, it's very interesting to me that this comes out not from Ludwig himself, but it comes out through Anna, and it comes out in a scene which is basically a torture scene, almost like she's being waterboarded. Like He has hit her in the face, and then he takes her head and is putting it under the faucet in the tub putting all this water all over her. And that's when a lot of this information is coming out and just all of this opportunism that has come, come out over the years. So it's, uh, it's, it's not him being tortured, but it's him torturing his own wife. And so much of this movie is him just being such a shit. And we really need to emphasize that this is all taking place on, and they make sure that we know it Tuesday, July 17th, which is their 10th year wedding anniversary and he has completely forgotten about it he is so into his own stuff that he has not remembered that it's their anniversary and some of these complaints that she has about their sex life and that they are when they go to bed he reads to her about brickworks around the country and that they are not having a good healthy sexual relationship and when we finally get that moment where uh, it seems like everything is kind of in the clear after this little soiree that happens later on in the film. The first thing that he does is lay out a blanket and wants her to put on her negligee and wants to basically have sex right there on the kitchen floor. That happens right before this torture scene. And it's like, okay, now we're ready to have sex and she wants no part of it. The Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf stuff is really present, but it's this kind of intensity and somewhat one-sidedness that separates it from the two. You feel like there is, the in Virginia Woolf, though their relationship is very messed up, there is a weird kind of balance to it. That you get more of a sense that this is how they survive, and even if it is kind of unhealthy, it is still who they are and it is what they have. Whereas 
in the ear, but there's much more feeling that there uh, is hollowness, that there isn't anything there. It really is only the constriction of the walls of the house and traditions and 10 years that holds them together. And the violence of his attack on her, each time I watch it, it just hurts more. It's really, really quite brutal, and you yet it's treated so normalised, and you just know that this kind of thing probably happens in the house next door and the house over the street and everywhere, especially at this time. It is him reacting to her barbs. It is that classic thing of the the the, the, the stereotype of the, the woman knows what to say while the man knows where to hit, and she knows where to get under his skin. And this, again, is a mirror of their own government, of that the government knows exactly what to do to control them, to shape them, to make them behave. A lot of this feels like the government is incompetent as far as how this purge went down. I mean, they come home too early from the party. They interrupt the bugging when he is at the party. Uh, he is asking about his boss, and people are like, what, why are you asking about this? There's that bald guy at the party who talks about how the waiters are all spies, and he's the one who gives the most information as far as why – uh, the boss was removed. I mean, it's not just the report that you're talking about, but he mentions that the boss's name was not really his name. And when he gives what the boss's real name was, it's a Jewish name. So we still have that anti-Semitism that runs through the Nazi re regime into the communist regime. Let's get rid of all of these unwanted people, which are the Jews, which is really terrible. The scapegoats never change. It's always the same scapegoats. But yeah, that, that is this, and this is what we're talking about, how dark and terrifying and melodramatic and grim this film is. It is also quite funny in part. Like there is a lot of comedy, like very much a gallows humor, but it's in there. And that, especially that moment where he's pointing out the reason why they know that the waiters are spies is because they can't identify which one's the salmon and how poorly they dish up the food at this magnificent castle with all these dignitaries they're just terrible terrible waiters you know somewhat someone can be a whiz at finance at the financial market and then like they, they they're so good with money in earning it but they're so bad at keeping it and they just have so much money that they don't need to think about uh using it intelligently they can just spread it everywhere and that's what I think what this is. It's like it's, it, they do have they, – they, they might appear to be dumb, but it's because they have so much power that they don't need to be smart. They can just be in the open. They can just walk down the street. There is no reason to hide. It's like the neo-Nazis turning up in America again. It's like, oh, they really thought it was okay to just walk down the streets. Oh, apparently it is. That's not cool, but that's what's happening. And it's the same here. It's like everybody in this in this world, all the people he talks to, they don't want this happening. They would fight against it. You get this feeling that if they could, if they had enough strength and enough spine to do it. But the power is just there. The power is just present. The power is blind and brutal and there's no escaping it. There's a real element of, you know, that we know that we're pretending we don't know going on and it's this big charade that everyone has to play along with and i i think that's that's part of what was terrible about that regime is you say something behind closed doors you believe one thing but in public you know you have to say what you have to say and um you know some communist minister can spout absolute nonsense and everyone has to 
clap politely and smile. And it's this grotesque charade. And there's these images of, you know, people dancing at the party. And it's absolutely grotesque. It's like, a, you know, some kind of a scene from uh, Dante's Inferno. Everybody's in hell dancing and smiling. And you can tell that nobody really believes in this. They all have to play along. There's that one moment where they're dancing and it's almost like they're crawling on the floor and the music is just crazy at that moment. Yeah, it's like it's almost Mask of the Red Death, like Edgar Allan Poe as well, <laughs> hiding from the plague, the red, literal red plague coming in from outside. <laughs> oh, that Havelka soundtrack, it's so disquieting. I was surprised it's the same composer who did uh, Who Wants to Kill Jesse, which is very different. But uh, there's such a great sense of unease that you get throughout the film. And a lot of that is the soundtrack. Yeah, the, the soundtrack's magnificent. As you mentioned earlier, uh, Mike, the back, that beginning, just the noise on the black, that it's this kind of drone, almost tinnitus-like sound, which is perfect for a film called The Ear. It's this damage that you just can't shake out of your head. I also want to talk about the way that we cross-cut, too, with the whole idea of audio. You know, you're talking about the music and the way that audio will go from one scene to another. And sometimes we'll actually get lines over one bit that belong to the other bit. So there's one part in particular where he's in the bathroom and he looks pretty much directly at the camera, talking about Ludwig. And then we hear someone say, do you want some scissors? And it's just like, okay, what is that? what's going on. And of course it's Anna's voice from the other scene, but we have that overlap of audio, which is really nice. And we get that a few times throughout this film where, and even later on, there's a moment where he is answering questions in one moment in, in the present quote unquote, and the questions are being asked from the past. So it's this really nice way that we're going back and forth in the way that we're using sound in here. Oh, everything in this film is tension between two points. Absolutely everything. It's just the tension between duality, the tension between being a good husband and a bad husband, the tension between being a good citizen and a bad citizen, the tension between inside and outside. I mean, even from the get-go, the very first two lines of the film are, put your shoes on, and she responds, leave me alone, will you? That's the two tensions of the film. Do something. I don't want to. I want to be free. And it's just like the whole film just holds on to this and, you know, through the flashbacks, through the everything, the light and dark, black and white, it's just this constant tension. You can almost hear the wires about to snap. The performances are so effective at walking that tightrope of tension. Radoslav Brzobohati, he's also in uh, All My Good Countrymen or All My Good Compatriots, which was another shelved film, band film. He's also in one of my favorite Czech films, Attentat, which is about killing the uh, number three Nazi, Heydrich, uh, which is very good. But this is such a different character from what I'm usually used to seeing him as, where he plays these, you know, slightly more heroic figures, or definitely more heroic figures. Um, but here, I, I think one of the great tricks about his performance is that uh, at the beginning you're sort of in his shoes and you kind of empathize with him and you want him to somehow make it through and survive. And by the end, you completely despise him. He turns out to be such a terrible, venomous, uh, hateful person. You know, you, it, it's one of the ironies of the film that that ends up being what he's rewarded for. But 
you know, it's this great, not character arc, but revelation of character. You realize as you go on more and more who this person really is. And Yoshina Bohodolova, she's sort of the perfect foil as Anna for him to bring out all his worst aspects through this uh, toxic relationship that they have. And at the time of this recording, she is still going strong. She is still showing up in many things. And it's just, I'm so glad that she is still a working actress. Martin, it's interesting that you come to the end still despising him because I think like Virginia Woolf, um, Anna kind of humanizes him a bit more by the, 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 the relationship that is still there, that the connections do bind them, even if they may not be great. They still, you can sense that they started somewhere and all those, you know, those seeds of hope that they may have once had, they still somewhere buried inside of these two people. And when you get to the end, it's like he's not, you know, he's not the cremators striding off into the sunset to burn, burn, burn. He's a person who has fully realized the error of all of his behaviors. And I think there is a lot of sympathy there, even if I wouldn't say likable. It, there's, 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 a, there's a certain, there is a certain human sympathy that you can't help but feel sorry for these people who were trapped in a very, very sick world at a very sick time and just did not do the right thing. Sure. I, I think he's uh, pitiable. I, I think that's part of making you understand how this system operates, the sort of systemic problems that this relationship feeds into. I, I think Anna definitely cares about him, you know, even though this is obviously a very dysfunctional marriage. There's that scene where she's crawling across the outside of the house because she thinks he's about to kill himself and maybe he would have except his uh, gun has been taken while um, men were in the house but uh, you know she she really seems to love him at that moment and they have definitely moments of affection between them this sort of early morning waiting for somebody to show up to take him away it's um, it's affectionate or her packing his pajamas in his briefcase because she figured that he was going to be sent off to jail Uh, you know there's care but um again I, I think it's just a bad bad relationship for them both and you know even though it's uh humanizing definitely i i think uh, you know you can humanize a character it's, it's not the same as letting them off the hook for their choices and where they end up you know i mean that character ludwig or ludva they they call him a lot in the film if uh, he had shown any kind of spine or moral integrity i think by the morning, he probably would have been a dead man. I, I think, in some ways, this listening and seeing how he reacts—it's, um, you know, could be interpreted as a sort of hazing, or it could be interpreted as a sort of test to see how he's going to react that night, to see if he really is minister material. He's a deputy minister, like a lower minister, and by the end, he's uh, promoted to the job of his former boss, uh, Koshara, who's the uh, man who's disappeared. Uh, presumably, that's the man whose picture he tears up in the bathroom, uh, whose real name is a Jewish name. And, you know, the the way he kind of denies liking him, knowing him, it, it's like, uh, you know, the, the denying Christ three times sort of a thing. Um, you know, he, obviously they had some kind of a close relationship, you know, close enough that I, I think Koshara was his uh, son's godfather. You don't really see the son until the end of the film, but you know he obviously had an important role in his life. But all you see in the film is the 
denouncement, him trying to distance himself. And it's only these little clues that make you realize that actually he does know him better. Actually, his report probably is responsible in some way for this man disappearing. And he thinks his head might be on the chopping block next, but really he's the replacement. Well, and it's interesting, actually, that you bring up the godfather aspect because um, President Novotny was the godfather of Proshkovsket's daughter. Um, so, again, maybe this is a relationship that has mirrored the relationship he had with Novotny and then when things shifted, much the same kind of thing happened to Jan. I think this film is its very, very timeless. There's a lot of it that feels like it could be made yesterday, which doesn't say much for our modern world. But I think the bit that really makes it feel like that for me is the discord in their relationship, the alcohol abuse, all these little fiddly things that just get in the way because they're so tangled up in their own unhappiness that they can't deal with larger things. And I feel like this is, you know, this is a huge problem in the world that we can't join together to try and solve big problems because we're all stuck in our little world fighting little battles that ultimately won't mean much if it all comes crashing to an end. And I think the film captures this in such a human and real way that is, you know, it doesn't feel archaic and it doesn't feel, there's nothing that sets it apart particularly for being the 60s. It's, it could be any time at all. It's only really the technology, and even that, it's, it's only that that technology didn't exist pre a certain amount of time. But certainly that, you know, we've got, we carry our listening devices everywhere with us and just accept that the ear is probably listening now. Right. Today, you, you probably don't have to have somebody listen and you're putting it out there on Facebook or Twitter for the world to see. That might be the only difference. But I, I think you're right that there's this timeless quality to it. And yeah, I mean, this film is dealing specifically with um, Czech communism, Czechoslovak uh, communist era, but it's really that there are a lot of regimes that are run this way and rely on these sorts of human behavior. So I think it's in some ways universal. You can look at, uh, you know, many other places and times that you could place these characters into. There's certainly the argument to be made that uh, regimes learn from the, the regimes before until they get to the point where they don't appear to be regimes at all. You can look at this film and see that one of the things that separates it from uh, the films like the, that were set more in the Nazi period is the way that they have learned and they have developed and shifted in the way that they approach their subjects. I like that Anna directly addresses the ear throughout so much of the film that she will come into a room and just announce things about, you know, the, the, <laughs> the chairman is a grandfather. The mother doesn't have enough milk, all these kind of things. She just is, yeah, she's almost posting on her Facebook wall when it comes to this. And talking about the timeless quality of this, this film was remade in 2015 as a movie called Honey Night, which I don't recommend you Googling. And it was a Macedonian film. And I, was unable to find the movie, but I watched the trailer and the, of course they updated it. That was a color film, but the scenes at the party are all black and white, which is interesting because when it comes to the non party stuff, when they're at home by themselves, that seems the most noirish. I almost think they would have done it in reverse, but like I said, I haven't seen the film, so I'm not sure exactly how effective it is. This would almost work well as a stage play. You know, it's a small enough cast and it's so intimate that that might be one 
way of approaching it that could work well if you're adapting it to uh, some other medium. I mean, again, like, I think you could remake it easy. I don't know if that remake is any good. That that trailer looked very overwrought. <laughs> so I, I I don't know. But I could imagine this being set under, I don't know, like Idi Amin's regime or, you know, any other situation like that or present day of course I, I think it would be easy to actually update this film to present day uh you know maybe even america who knows yeah this is what life is like at kellyanne conway's house there is a, a certain sort of uh, samuel beckett like quality to it especially with uh the, the kind of those those intense like existentialist stares into the camera you mentioned the the house and it is it is such a character as well and it led me to thinking about sort of the way the technology of the ear intrudes into this space and how the house should, it should represent a within, uh, like a space of freedom and imagination, history, all of the interior elements that make humanity the bubbling wealth, uh, bubbling well of life that we promise to be. But because of the ear, like all this is stripped out or constricted or abandoned. And so, like, the oppressor being here, the communists, that it's kind of like that they were able to explode this within space, um, revealing it all to, to, to the outside and weaponizing it. Um, and it's transformed into a space for machines instead of for people. There's a great book called Technology as Symptom and Dream by Robert Ramanachan, uh, and he was a Really, uh, talking about an interview with the artist Alex Gray, who, if you don't know, did a lot of um, work for Tool with Lateralis, where he does the, the people where all their layers of flesh and skin are stripped away, so you see all the interiors as they perform human acts. And, um, yeah, Alex, Alex Gray says, described um, some of his works as a materialist attitude that leaves no space for the human spirit, which is exactly how you could describe this government, a materialist attitude that leaves no space for the human spirit. It becomes prison-like, and one thing I really like is how Kakinia sort of compartmentalizes each room, the way they're closing doors, the way they have to close the window because somebody could see the fire or the smoke, and constantly kind of cutting yourself off in individual spaces. And then as it's revealed where each uh, of the bugs has been hidden, you have to rethink back to, okay, what did they say in this room? What did they say in this room? And sort of rethink the spaces and i think they probably understood that uh there was a bug in one spot and then i later on they seem to reference that it's been removed so there was actually a bug that they thought was there that had been taken away and i'm not sure if you know there's one they find that seems to be covered in dust so maybe it's been there a long time other ones probably were planted more recently so it's interesting to try to think okay you know when they speaking in this room before the men showed up and drank and probably planted something in the kitchen you know you have to kind of work backwards in some ways to rethink what happened in each space yeah the the, the one with the dust that i think the point was that it wasn't covered in dust that's the oh, one in the kitchen okay. that makes more sense yeah okay. he, he, he puts his hat finger through this huge layer of grease and dust and yuck on the ground and then does the same thing on top of the bug and there's nothing and so it's like this has been here like no time at all <laughs> that's when they start to realize that because they 
the quality of my copy is uh, low, so I, <laughs> I wasn't sure what was going on there. This film is so, I think it was about the fourth time I watched it and there were still things I was like, oh, okay, got that now. Because it is, it is a very disorientating film the first time you watch it, but it's made in such a way that it's not confusing disorientating it's just disorientating in the same way it is for the characters so it does it's worth reviewing multiple times and yes dying for that hd quality copy but i i think also there's there's a really fantastic it's, i love what you said about the the closing of the doors the separating the spaces because the first thing that she does after he tries to kill himself is she unlocks both the bathroom doors that he had locked and she takes the key and she throws it down the drain and washes it away. Her act is to like to break down a barrier, to refuse to allow him to put up a barrier again. And again, I think that's one of the things that really humanizes um, and shows that there is more to the connection to them than just 10 years and just being trapped in a relationship. You talked about disorientation, and I think there are a couple moments that are purposefully disorienting, which is the whole use of the subjective camera, but really those shots of him where we are looking at him in a mirror, and we don't realize that we are looking at his reflection and the way that the camera will pull back, and then he'll turn. We've seen the back of his head. He'll turn towards us, and now we see that we were looking at his reflection. And they actually do that twice in this film, which I think is a really nice effect. So much of those party scenes, so much of it feels like it is us looking through his eyes, but then there are other moments where I don't think that we can be looking through his eyes, especially, uh, Martin, you mentioned the, the comrade, like basically the head coming in and giving this ridiculous speech and everyone clapping politely. And I love the one guy who turns around and is like, isn't he 60, but he's so vibrant, you know, <laughs> just like really, uh, you know, just buttering his toes. Oh, and he has so much macho posturing, like, yeah, I could sit down, have a beer, go back to the mines, but uh, <laughs> the way he talks. <laughs> the comrade directly addresses us. You know, it is not, I don't think he's looking at Ludwig. I think he is looking directly at us and giving his little speech. And there are a few moments like that, but then there are other moments where we are Ludwig and we've got people coming over to us and saying, have you heard about this person? Have you heard about that person? Or, you know, like the one guy who comes over and is about to say something to him. And then he looks up and we get his point of view as he looks up at the statue behind Ludwig and is, yeah, let's walk over here and talk because he figures there's probably a bug in this statue. Again, that subjective quality, it sort of functions like a memory. It, it's uh, one of the things that's most powerful about the film because you could have somebody explain to you about these purges and you sort of go, yeah, 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 and you can hear all the facts and dates and it doesn't really mean much. I think, you know, to understand the experience, you kind of have to be dropped into it and not fully understand the gravity of the situation or the exact details of the situation. You know, you get a sense uh, just through the politics of the party or certain events that Ludwig is is having as much trouble trying to navigate some of this as we are. And, you know, we're not privy to all the information, just like uh, he's not privy to everything, even though certain things he knows that we don't know until later on. But uh, a lot of it, I, I think, is sort of left unclear in a in an intriguing way, like his um, pal from the army, Standa. I'm not even sure if he really knows him. You know, maybe they dug somebody up that served with him. But, you know, the way Ludwig responds to him, I don't think he remembers him at all. Like, <laughs> he, he might not even really know him. You know, it, it's not entirely clear. And it's sort of this feeling of 
uh, somebody talking to you who remembers you and you're just going, yeah, yeah, I'm going along with it. Um, you know, and or maybe he knows something about this person that, uh, you know, he doesn't like. You know, he's definitely standoffish, even though he's um, initially relieved when he finds that they're not there to take him away but to drink. And I, I think there's a moment near the end when Anna asks him, like, hey, that was your army buddy, right? And he's like, my army days were years and years ago. Like, like I don't think he, I, he knows entirely. So he, there's a lot of details like that where you're kind of left unsure how to interpret it just the way I think the character is. Well, yeah, even even the, the beginning, uh, Standa has that great line, I'll take you somewhere where she won't be able to find you. I have an octopus at home, too. Yeah, yeah, a vampire, a real vampire. I think it's one of the other things he describes her as. I think he says octopus, and then it's a real vampire as well. But just yeah, that 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 kind of that double speak of I'll take you somewhere where she won't be able to find you could be an old friend going, let's go hide and drink over here, or welcome to the gulag. (laughs) And it's that again is that kind of gallows comedic streak where you kind of half laugh and half shudder. When these guys come in. And we have such a pomp and circumstance before they come in. And yeah, we were just around and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, no, I think you were the guys who were across the street who were rummaging through the neighbor's house after the purge. When they come in, it feels like that's when they're finishing the job. That's when all of these bugs get planted because it feels like they were interrupted before the meat's still cold in the refrigerator. So many of these things, you know, again, it's like this mystery that we're solving. It feels like someone was just there. And now it feels like, okay, after we've uh, rummaged through the neighbor's house, now, now it's time to come back and finish the job with your house. It's even possible there was somebody in the house at the same time as them when he goes down to the basement and finds the door open and, you know, this, uh, convoluted okay what what was locked and unlocked you sort of wonder if maybe somebody might have even have been in the building uh right at the same time if not just left and one thing talking about the humor i I like is just the little acts of theft you know these upper crust uh elite communists stealing beets from the yard or anna taking an orange from the party like everyone's just kind of uh swiping things and you know they're you know, this is the the top of the society, but you kind of get a feeling that, you know, none of these people are that well off. I mean, it's a huge house. And, uh, you know, going back to the sort of anti-Semitic angle with Goshara, like thinking back to what Ludwig's history might be, I always heard about in, there are these huge houses left over after the Holocaust in Czechoslovakia. And then they were occupied by communists after they were occupied by Nazis. So you sort of wonder, you know, maybe who's lived in this house before this large house, uh, you know, whose artwork is that on the wall? Sometimes you can question these things. And again, the film doesn't really have any answers there, but it's part of just trying to unpack what exactly the history of this person is. Yeah, it's also the on the food aspect is really interesting because I seem to remember that one of the reasons that Daisy's was very attacked and eventually banned was because of its wasting of food, and that was considered a great crime and a, you know it was terrible to represent this. And so their little mini party where they're wasting the anniversary cake and they're wasting the alcohol is very Daisy's like in this kind of chaotic spree of destruction and mayhem. Um, and again, it's, it feels like, you know, it looks like something that's just 
no, it's just Friday night. But it's actually, like, again, quite a subversive um, act. And also in relation to the food, too, that, that stealing, it's like there's so much, the food has so many significance. You know, I think of Jan Spunkmeyer and his shorts that used, you know, like meat love and uh, eating and things like that. But it, it's, it's, a, it's very much food is such an important strain through all of Czech and uh, Czechoslovakian Slovak cinema. That's a really good point. I mean, with Daisies, I sort of wonder how much of that was just a pretext to ban a film that didn't really fit into the sort of ideologically driven styles, the, you know, socialist, realist looking films. And uh, part of living through that regime was that so many things could potentially get you in trouble and be a crime. That That's part of how it operated is any little infraction could have a severe repercussions. And I think that kind of feeds back into Uko, where you have them say all these things, any of which could get them into trouble. And it's this idea that really you could be arrested or sent off or even killed uh, for, you know, just about anything. And when they have that much dirt on you, uh, as was the case with Ludwig by the end of the film, they have sort of complete control over you because, you know, any little pretext uh, off you go away with you. The man who plays Standa. He seems to be almost a mirror version of Ludwig to me. He's got the hair the same way. He's got a similar smile. To me, it feels like he was cast because he looks like the actor who plays Ludwig. Shorter, of course, um, almost just like a funhouse version of him. Am I the only one that gets that? Yeah, I can certainly see that, Mike. There's a, there's a kind of doppelganger to him is his dark inverted version because even also if i remember correctly when Stander comes in he's he's got the black coat on so you know they're they're kind of like he's the, he's the dark version where whereas uh, uh ludwig is already already in his like nice bright shirt and sweater these guys that come in for this little soiree at their house we meet them on the street right around the time that we meet them in the flashback and both of those scenes are just so strange to me. The whole idea of they say like, Oh, uh, people of authority use pseudonyms. And he introduces, Standa introduces two of the guys as the brothers Grimm and says that they're authors. But then in the flashback, we see that one of them is clearly wearing a pistol. So we know that he is up to no good with this pistol and the room that Standa takes him into for their conversation, the room that his wife won't find him in, one of the strangest rooms I've ever seen before. All of those uh, antlers all over the wall. It is almost grotesque how many dead animals we have in here. Little ones, too. Not huge antlers. It's uh, it's something that I think must have really existed. I'm sure it's, it's too strange to have been uh, just invented by a set dresser, I think. Maybe, yeah, trophies of death. Some little exciting location that they found. Yeah, it's like all the, you know, might as well be little deputy ministers' heads mounted on the wall. Yeah, it did remind me of that shot in The Fifth Horseman is Fear where he goes in and there's all the clocks on the wall, all that have been taken from the different houses, the different Jewish people that have been sent off, you know, to the camps. And with this, yeah, maybe these were all trophies from those other deputy ministers. What's the word? Metonym? Something that stands in for something else? All these things that stand in for death? 
Yeah, this little soiree that they have is just talk about debauchery. I mean, this is we see more drinking and everything and eating and just uh you know the the guy who's like uh spitting out food onto the table. I mean, it, this is like that Daisy scene in miniature. Yeah, and and a bit of a compressed version of Fireman's Ball as well. <laughs> I like that we end the soiree on a freeze frame too. I mean, we are doing some interesting things here when it comes to just filmic techniques. I mean, we talked about the subjective camera and everything. There's also a really nice use of focus that happens in this film where again, talking about memory, some of these scenes where we transition from the present into the flashback, we're doing a rack focus out to nothing basically. And then coming back in from another scene, a lot of the, the time these cuts from present to flashback are just, straight up cuts where I talked about how they, they, uh, dovetail them with interactions between the two, but then others we fade to or we, we blur out and then we blur back in. So it's a nice way to, to keep us on our guard. Also the, the kind of the, the, the snappiness of the editing in that scene where the infant in the room with all the, the people who end up at the soiree, that the, the real sharp cuts between the different actors feels like the panicked deer that is about to end up on that wall as its eyes quickly flick from one under to the next. <laughs> There's not much cutting on action. It, it's sort of this uh, somewhat elliptical edits that uh, you're jumping around and changing point of view. And, it, and that's a lot like the cremator has a sort of similar editing style. It, it's a little bit ratcheted up in the cremator, but uh, you know, this sort of fits in stylistically as, as kind of a toned down companion, maybe. <laughs> After he says goodbye to his compatriots and Standa, he comes back into the garden. He's the one that, that now takes something out of his own garden. And we get, again, audio from the flashback into the present. And this is really where we're interacting between the two. And the way that he they cut from him in the garden to these three girls, and they really pointedly, you, you mentioned the whole thing about the house, you know, is your house warm in winter? Because basically we'll take your house if we uh, purge you. And they're talking about the one girl, this very pretty girl, and talk about how they basically, the, the party has basically gotten rid of her husband and got her a divorce so that she can be married off to somebody else because she's so attractive. People in power, you know, they, they, not all the ways they're going to use that power are going to even be driven by ideology. Like, you know, I, I think, again, fitting into this idea that these people are not idealists, they're just simply in power and, uh, you know, they're going to abuse that power you know, maybe to get a woman that they want or, you know, any number of things, their motivations for why they purge somebody are not necessarily based on political infractions. It could just be because you have something that they want. Uh, it could be for no reason at all, really. I, I think it helps sort of expand this idea that you could be in trouble for just about anything. I, I think it feeds into this paranoia. You know, maybe they're not coming for Ludwig because of the report he's written maybe they're going to come for him just because he has a house that they like so i think it's it's part of that abuse of power it also reveals that communism tried to set itself up in opposition to capitalism but really was functioning on the same kind of <laughs> basis it was still a lot of processes of objectification and commodification and that's what they are that's all the girl is an object to be become a commodity the house is a commodity it's all things that can be traded backwards and forwards for power and position. And certainly, you know, there's 
the majority of this film, he is in a position where he is placed uh, in a fearful position where he is drawn, everything is drawing his attention to the things that he should be afraid of. But yeah, there is that one scene where this a very attractive young lady is dangled in front of him as a kind of promise of being like, yeah, yeah, you might be afraid, you should be afraid, but there are pluses if you want to go that way. Yeah, and it's no coincidence to me that it is almost immediately after that scene that we get him all horned up and wanting to have sex with Anna on the kitchen floor. I love her whole, not even the hot and tots do that. Lay on the floor like a bunch of gypsies that's her line, yeah. And I don't want the ear hearing this. No, no. I don't want like, people, listening, <laughs> people in listening when I'm having. I was thinking about Anna and wondering if she ever gets the subjective camera because so much of this movie is, is seen through Ludwig's eyes. And I don't know if she does. There's the one scene that is completely without him where she's getting the flowers at the party. Which is strange because she comes home with the hat, but she doesn't come home with the flowers. So I don't know whatever became of these flowers. And that is her anniversary gift, basically. They ask, is anyone celebrating anything today? And she's the only one that raises her hand and then has to prove that she got married on that day. We believe the lady, but we must verify Editing in that sequence, it's very similar to when the comrade was speaking earlier in the film with these quick cuts. And the quick cuts of reactions to all of these different women is uh, terrific to me. And then also the framing of the guy who's looking at her wedding ring. There's so much space above his head, and it just feels like he's going to fall out of the frame at any moment. I mean, just the cinematography in this film if we haven't made it apparent before, is just terrific that they are really doing so much of this stuff purposefully and making you uneasy almost all the time, even in such an innocuous scene as her getting that. And then you were talking about the small infractions and I love when the guy comes over after she's won the flowers and he's like, you can't take the vase home. The comrade doesn't know about these things. I'll put these in, in paper and there's that little thing about, you know, the comrades kind of dumb. And then there's an earlier part where Ludwig goes and takes a drink and he's just like, oh my God, this is awful. You know, who loves this shit? And, and the guy's like the comrade. And you almost think like he's going to take another drink. Like, okay, yeah, it's good now. What is it? Pineapple and schnapps or something awful? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Pineapple liqueur and vodka. I think it was Right, right. Right. <laughs> <laughs> It actually doesn't sound too bad to me, but then I've, I've drunk pineapple uh, and uh, black sambuca, so yeah, yeah, make of that what you will. It is interesting that you are you ask about whether Anna gets the POV, because you could argue that she does in that scene, but as you pointed out, it, that scene is still shot the same way as when the comrade is giving his big speech about imbalances and things. And so you, I think actually like that the comrade himself seizes control of the camera. I would say that that would have been a very deliberate choice um, by the cinematographer and the, the director that this is when the comrade is in there, the, the POV is is the comrade's eye of God looking back at him like a, a narcissistic mirror. And everywhere he goes, in every room he enters, the comrade seizes all and he becomes the centre of everything. So even in that moment that could have been Anna's uh, one chance to have the POV, it is taken from her by this man who doesn't entirely believe her and doesn't particularly care what's going on. It's quite a disempowering moment, really, when you, especially when you look at it from that perspective. There's also this sense sometimes that you're aware of yourself as a 
participant in the film, almost like a third character when you're just overhearing these two say it's something that's very intimate and private and just meant for each other. And you're kind of taking that position of the ear in, in hearing them. And you're sort of aware of yourself as a spectator to all of this. It, it kind of pushes it back onto you in, in a certain way. And uh, same with the, the POV shots. You know, you're in Ludwig's shoes, but a lot of the times it feels like, you know, maybe these people are addressing you completely and you could almost as easily answer as uh, he can. Yeah, it's interesting you point that out because the, for me, I definitely get that and experience that in the film, but I get it most when it's Ludwig directly looking down the barrel of the camera. It's like when he, when he like pins you to the seat and you feel like his eyes reach across the decades and looking at me right here and now. I get a chill, like, that's that's when it gets me and when I feel like I am implicated in this. <laughs> and again, that's very Alexi Garman. That also reminds me a lot of Cristelli of My Car, where you have these glances into camera, which make you aware of the camera, and it should break the reality of the film. You know, a lot of uh, films try to avoid anyone looking into camera. That's sort of a rule, but I, I think that technique of having somebody glance into camera, it can make it feel more real, more present, that you're watching real people just in another place and time, it, it connects you to the past in this really profound way. Yeah, I think this is one of those films that kind of proves that there aren't... It's one of many films that proves that there aren't rules in cinema. It's like there are rules in cinema for people who aren't capable of going beyond them, but then the people who truly understand that this form can do absolutely anything, this film this is one of those films that's like, no, 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 no there's no rules. You, you can do whatever you need to and it will work. It'll hold together just as it can be disorientating without being confusing. It can completely keep revealing to you that it is a film, that it is an artificial construct of a man remembering and yet still create that sense of memory and even as it unravels in unreality. It's, it's, it's quite magnificent. And also it's interesting because we mentioned Beckett before, the last conversation that we were having, Mike, when we were talking about Mad Max and we were talking about the witness me and how that relates to Samuel Beckett's film of that horror of being seen, of the inescapability of being seen and to be seen is to be alive. And if you wish to not exist, then you have to be not seen because the only way to not exist is to never be seen. And it's like this is a, this is a world where yeah, he can't even kill himself. They've taken that from him. They're completely trapped and they're always seen or heard or observed or observing. And when it comes to these purges, it feels like once these people are gone, they are gone and maybe not even their names will remain within a few hours. You have the famous photographs where uh, Stalinist Stalin's cohorts are being airbrushed out, <laughs> disappearing. You know, their image itself is, is sort of erased and you can't acknowledge it. Everyone has to sort of, again, role play that it's, uh, you know, they, they might know on the inside, but effectively this person's completely erased. It's like, um, I don't know, I, I heard somebody joking before about, you know, somebody speaks out against uh, Stalin or whoever and they're dragged off and shot and the next person says... Yeah, see, you shouldn't have talked about it about Stalin, and then he's dragged off and shot because really you should be allowed to critique him, but you can't. It's this sort of catch twenty two type situation for a lot of it, where uh, you know you have to sort of live in a false reality, and that's that's kind of the excruciating part of it. Yeah, it definitely ties it back to that that test aspect and Kafka's the trial of not knowing what you're accused of or how to respond to it to get yourself out of it. You just have to be the right whatever that it is that they want. 
I mean, one of the most powerful moments in the film, I think, it's when the men are at the front gate and Ludwig, you're not sure if maybe he's rehearsing what he's going to say to them, or maybe it's a quiet prayer where he just says to himself, I didn't do anything on my honor. And, you know, you, you find out that he, he's not an honorable person, really, by the end of the film. You know, so what that's worth, I don't know. But it, it's such a sincere moment from him where, uh, you know, even if it's a rehearsed sincerity to get him out of trouble, I'm not sure. But uh, that that moment uh, hit me hard. You know, somebody who's just really at the end of his rope on my own And Talking about, you know, you, you said about how it's the, we can we can imagine and and. and think that we understand what it is to be in a world where these purges happen. I think also with the suicide thing is similar. So I've definitely been in that situation where somebody close to me, I th- thought they are about to do this for real. And there is, that's again, again, it's a thing that you think you can imagine it, but until you felt it, you just, you just don't know. And I think that's one of the reasons why, again, that, that for me, that's hit, that scene changes the characters for me so much because I definitely have an emotional uh, memory reaction to that. In regards to, to missing people, we haven't even mentioned the fact that there is there is a, a third character in this house. There is there they have a child <laughs> who is to blame for blame for much along the way. <laughs> yeah, they initially think that he had people over and did all of this mischief. <laughs> yeah, but he's it's it, thinking about it now and thinking about purges. It feels right that this character is so absent because it is like what happens to the child afterwards and it's almost like afterwards if they were purged all of this would maybe just be a dream that that child had some half-heard memory from his childhood that barely exists anymore is it just as much as he barely exists in the argument that they are having and it's interesting this uh, little anecdote that comes up near the end of the film when they mention that the their son Ludek, he spat on an image and uh, nobody told on him, but he told on himself. And you're sort of thinking about the next generation, if, you know, people are going to be like Ludwig or not, if that's going to be passed down to the next generation, I, I think it's sort of the implication with that story. Well, it also comes back to what we were saying about Facebook before and us sharing everything instead of having to have it dug out, doesn't it? <laughs> the, we've, we've steadily been trained to, to tell instead of hide. I love how uh, Ludwig, after Anna gives all of the things that he has done over the years in order to scrape his way to the top, as she puts it, <laughs> he starts accusing her of being a bad comrade as well. And his whole thing is you use the car to go to the hairdressers and even sent the driver out for blueberries. And it's like, wow, those are the infractions that you're bringing up now, as opposed to how you basically fucked over your brother, all of these different things. And it's interesting to me too, during that whole sequence that, you know, you mentioned Stalin and Stalin's name does not really come up in this film very often, if at all, other than the one time where she pointedly brings up Stalin's name, and he almost immediately clasps his hand over her mouth, just like, you do not talk about Stalin in this yeah, house. Flag word, flag word. But I think also, like, the, on the food thing, like, it's, it's an escalating um, scale, because we have an orange stolen, which is absolutely one of the most basic fruits for us. And a radish stolen, which is, again, like one of the most basic vegetables. So blueberries, 
oh, blueberries are like oysters on the vegetable fruit scale. So it, it does actually, even though it's ridiculous, it does make sense in the continuate continuum of the film, what we've been told and experienced so far. It, relating it to the fireman's ball earlier, that idea that everyone's stealing, it's like when the lights are off, everyone's stealing, including the firemen themselves. You know, that's the partly the metaphor in that film. And here it, it's just, um, it's text. It's not really metaphor but do you sort of assume if people are stealing radishes maybe they're stealing other things as well oh wives and houses stealing houses stealing wives yes <laughs> it, it does escalate yeah but there's also the the aunt's belongings in the attic as well which is you know what if they find these here the sewing machines and things like that that there's also this aspect of hiding things that you're not meant to have that are belongings it's almost like you, it, it would be better to be caught with things you stole than things that you're not meant to own. And Anna very pointedly talks about how there is a draft coming from the attic, like somebody has been up there recently. I mean, that feeds into this sort of slightly horror story mood that it has. You know, that, again, that the, uh, the, the shots with the candelabra are some of my favorite in the film, this dark, dreary... <laughs> atmosphere like you know it could turn into a gothic horror story at any moment a draft from the house could be a ghost uh if a ghost turned up in the film i wouldn't be completely disappointed (laughs) it turns out to not be that sort of film but it feels like it could be at certain moments but again it it ties back to what you were saying about who owned these houses what nightmares have what you know people people have been ripped from these homes previously the ghosts that haunt them you know, those ghosts are coming back and repeating in these regimes over and over again. It's a, the history repeating itself. Like a lot of good horror films, there's this sort of um, psychosexual subtext going on through a lot of it. It's hard to pin down exactly, but I mean, some of the shots like flushing down the toilet, you think maybe of uh, Hitchcock's Psycho or something like that you could relate it to. I don't, uh, the conversation, I don't think Coppola would have seen this film since it was uh, shelved and hidden away but uh, you have that famous scene in the conversation where the blood comes up through the toilet and just something about this film with the listening devices and this emphasis on the uh, toilet for whatever reason I I think uh, I was thinking of the conversation watching this at various points you could probably also relate it to something like uh, Lives of Others which is kind of the uh, ear from the ears point of view I was reminded a little bit of a uh, report on partying guests as well, and just the uh, the whole idea of the pageantry that goes into that movie and how misunderstandings be- kind of uh, just snowball in there. And those weird moments of uh, just we have these understandings as far as, you know, th- with that film, there's the party that takes place outside and they have these lines drawn in the stones or whatever. And the woman who starts to walk in where there's not a quote unquote doorway and she has to be very sure to go through the two stones that demarcate that it is a door and just that we have set up these ridiculous rules that people have to follow and it feels very much like that whole idea of yeah let's let's set up all of these things and you have to be so careful to not violate these rules for whatever reason he might not have written it but he was involved with a report on the party and its guests i think maybe he was the producer or involved in some capacity towards the end here when we actually have the big comrade talking to Ludwig, it's 
so weird to me that he starts to say something, he gets distracted, he starts to say something again, and it basically all amounts to absolutely nothing. And it's still just Ludwig looking for answers and trying to make clarity out of things. And that's also really nice that we finally get daylight in this film after 80 minutes of darkness in this movie and it all being set at night or at this party where it's also night. Then we finally get them outside huddled up in their blankets, possibly the only place that they're not going to be overheard by the ear as they try to put these last pieces together. Did you think maybe there's a listening device in the swallow's nest? I completely thought there was a listening <laughs> device in the swallow's nest. What you just mentioned about the, the scenes where the communist head is speaking to him directly and he's saying, like, I haven't spoken to you yet, have I? There's this um, almost American psycho kind of quality of these uh, deputy ministers all being somewhat interchangeable and you could easily mistake one for another or, uh, you know, <laughs> mistake somebody's name for somebody else. Uh, like uh, Which it Prokaska. sounds like what yeah. happened to the writer. Yeah, <laughs> right. You know, so uh, part of me kind of wonders uh, if, you know, maybe there's some misunderstanding. Maybe Ludwig was only saved through being mixed up with somebody else. Maybe he was supposed to be killed for his report, but, uh, you know, maybe his army buddy mistook him for uh, his real army buddy and something like that could have conspired to save his life. You don't always know exactly. And you do get a feeling that this is kind of uh, not a well-organized system necessarily. And that, uh, you know, maybe he's he's benefiting only through circumstance or through um you know maybe being mistaken for somebody else it could happen i thought i had watching those scenes that they did feel somewhat like a battlefield where you're kind of you've got these shifting shifting positions and trying to interpret data of what's going on who's where who's on that hill who's on this hill and just trying to find the right kind of maneuver to get through it alive and of course, you know, the people you listen to the people recounting stories of being on battlefields and the just the random feeling of who lives and who dies of which bullet, you know, misses this person by an inch and kills the person behind them or goes to that person's ear and kills the person. You know, there's things where it's like just a half a millimeter to the left and all this kind of stuff. So that definitely, I agree that there's that they, they manifest that same kind of feeling, but in a, a mental, emotional way, psychological way. There's all these uh, factions and any comment misinterpreted could maybe align you with the wrong faction. You know, there's the Russians asking like, oh, you know, do, do Czechs uh, pour concrete in the frost? And he's saying no. And you go, oh, well, you know, Russians do that. And, you know, did, <laughs> could that get him in trouble? And, you know, there's maybe the, like uh, Koshara is one of the people who disappears. But I think there's also Klepach is uh, another one who's disappeared. And there seem to be some people who are maybe loyal to him and... There's at least four people that the comments is Kosra, Tundal, Klepak, and Slicingen. So it's a pretty big purge. It's not just a. It, it's, it's it's certainly you know the more there are, the more there are, they're likely to disappear. So it's certainly understandable that he feels that he's going to get caught up in that net. But I, I also love on this sort of the crazy confusion of what gets you in trouble when she tries calling Kosra's house. And he says, like, <laughs> again, an odd moment of comedy where it's like, they will think it's me trying to call him. And so he calls back and says, it's not my husband, it's me calling. <laughs> but that, it's so eerie, you know, answering the phone and it, it's not his wife, it's some strange man who answers, you know, that they're already there. And you even wonder if 
you know, again, if it was a test, if maybe by the end of the night uh, they could have decided to kill Ludwig instead of Kosherra, if his life was in the balance and it was completely dependent on what Ludwig said throughout, you know, there, there's a lot of possibilities that can come out of this. And I, I think that just feeds into the paranoia and anxiety and doubt and makes this such a potent film. Maybe much like um, the, the story that I read earlier of how Pushkovsko became friends with Novotny, uh, perhaps the person listening in on it all has a sense of humour and just laughed when she made the second phone call. Perhaps that was enough to get him out of trouble. I've heard stranger stories than that of why people decided to not kill people. Maybe it was because he gave them cake. And bottles to go home with. I'm, I'm sure Prokaska saw some of this firsthand, you know, so there's, you know, these little anecdotes uh, sometimes seen directly, sometimes get filtered down to you and you kind of work them into the story. It's, uh, you know, as surreal and abstract as this can appear, like uh, Kafka's The Trial or 1984, something like that, you know, it's also taken from life. This really happened to people. I love films like that where it's like it has such an unreality and a craziness to it, but you watch and you're like, no, I, I can believe that if maybe not all of this together, but all of this in part. I have that same thing with watching something like Wolf Creek. It's like, yeah, yeah, Australia is really big and we are, there's a lot of really terrifying people in Australia. I have no doubt that incidents from this film have occurred. <laughs> You talked about bad data before, and there's two big pieces of bad data which are happening in this movie, which is the sound of the bell for the front gate and the sound of the telephone are the exact same sound in that they can't tell is somebody calling or is somebody at the gate. And I think that happens multiple times in this film where the, the, they think that the phone is ringing, but it's actually the soiree happening at the gate. They think that the gate is being buzzed, but no, it's actually the phone call that ends the film. And so they, that they can't even tell the difference between those two. I mean, maybe that's just the way that things were in uh, Czechoslovakia at the time, but I imagine that they could probably tell the difference. But yeah, it's the exact same sound effect for both of those things. It does fit in with this motif of the mirroring and, like you said, Standa being uh, somewhat of a doppelganger for him. There's these confusions that uh, I think it, it just feeds into that atmosphere. Also, the mirroring of good news versus bad news. Good news in this is bad news. Bad news in this is good news. <laughs> I would like to go through the film and see how many times they talk about things being upside down. Because that pretty girl I was talking about earlier, she has, it looks like maybe a ruler in a box. And he tells her, oh yeah, you're you're opening up upside down. And then even when the comrade is giving his whole uh, speech, he talks about how the, the capitalists have things upside down, or we don't want to turn the world upside down. One of the most ridiculous things he said is, uh, we have to turn the world, but not upside down. Like, it's just complete nonsense. But like, there's that element of topsy-turvydom that, um, you know, even in Czechoslovakia's darkest hours, you know, you can usually find a lot of the humor in certain situations or in films or literature that just comes naturally out of this topsy-turvy kind of quality to the nation that, you know, it's there even even during dark days like this. Oh, absolutely. You know, something like Closely Observed Trains, which is simultaneously one of the most depressing and hilarious films I've ever seen. <laughs> yes. I kept looking through things, trying to find out if July 17th had more of a meaning than just their wedding anniversary, because I'm always curious about those kind of things. I was unable to find if that was a historically significant date in Czech history, but I would not be surprised if that comes up at some point. 
Yeah, well, it's, it's what 717 or 177 would be, what it would, the numbers would be. So I wonder if there's some significance there. Yeah, I kept thinking about that when it came to the phone number that they were giving people to report wrongdoers in the Fifth Horseman of Fear. One anecdote I knew about uh, uh, my grandparents, my uh, grandfather wanted to take my father on vacation and you needed references to get a passport. And I, I think probably just to Romania or something like that. He was brought in and questioned and shown that somebody had filed a report on him and it was some neighbor who was uh, nasty. And just by coincidence, their telephone number was off by one digit. So people would call for this uh, person who reported on my grandfather. My grandmother would answer and say, well, yeah, he, he's busy and he says, uh, fuck off to you and to you too. And uh, <laughs> got him into trouble. And, you know, she she worked also by coincidence at the same same place. Uh, so she knew who was asking for him and she could answer uh, on his behalf and reference other people, you know, oh, yeah, fuck this guy too. So he got into trouble and uh, fired and all sorts of stuff. So uh, <laughs> this might not be good for the episode. I oh, no, I, I think it, fit, it fits It fits perfect. Sorts of things like, you know, being one digit off. And it just makes me think of that. You hear lots of these kinds of stories, the, the strangeness, the confusion of it. Uh, yeah, and, and I think it fits perfectly with the film because it is that, that when you have a government that operates like this, part of the way it operates is by dividing. You don't want to allow people to come together. And so if you can set it up so that they are at each other's throats, then that's, it, it works better for the government because, again, like I said before, the distractions of our everyday lives stop us from dealing with the bigger issues. And I think, though I'm not saying that your grandmother isn't a totally rad hero uh, because she <laughs> definitely sounds like a totally rad hero, but still, <laughs> she wasn't exactly no, helping. No, I, I mean, it's uh, it, it was people at each other's throats and, you know, like uh, similar under German occupation, you had uh, children reporting on their parents and vice versa and all that sort of thing it's it's uh you know it was pretty cutthroat and you know the idea that these reports were not necessarily anonymous so reporting on somebody could get them into trouble but uh you know if that person didn't get into trouble maybe they'd show you who reported on you and uh, it would flip back around so you know it, again it, it's that total paranoia and you know anybody could be in trouble for anything so when they get so relieved when they find out that it's their neighbor that got purged rather than them. And that's like kind of the, the moment of celebration. I don't think it's any coincidence in this film either that the lights go back on uh, around the one hour mark when he pretty much throws his boss under the bus and then it feels, you know, then the lights go on and everything is okay. That's one of the first signs of relief. Also, we don't want to have the lights off when the soiree shows up at his door either. Yeah, it's definitely the, the feeling of like he, he's passing without, without even perhaps realizing it. He is passing gradual stages of a test, and he's getting little rewards like a rat in a cage. <laughs> I wish I was smarter when it comes to Renaissance paintings because that painting at the end of the film makes me very curious. Because I don't think we see that in the film before then, but them sitting there with that very purposeful frame with that large painting looming over them of the the half-naked woman, I wish I knew what the significance of that was. I don't think it's a famous painting. I tried to identify it. I even took a screenshot and 
did the reverse Google image search and that brought me back to stills of Uko. So it, it, <laughs> it just went in a circle. So I, I don't know. It's a very nice painting, but I, I don't think it's a famous one or necessarily meant to reference something. It's, um, you know, again, could just be a sign of maybe who had the house beforehand. Yeah, I think, I think that's possibly, and also that, that there isn't a lot of culture represented in this film. It's very much an absence of culture, and that's, you know, the communists were very good at annihilating. I mean, they committed genocide just as much as the Nazis did. And so to have that final shot with this sort of empty piece of culture that's so detached from history and meaning, it's, it's as hollow as the looks on their faces in many ways. It's just a shame we get people who go through frame by frame on something like Psycho and talk about all of the paintings that are in Norman's you know, parlor. And then this movie, there are so few things written about it when it really deserves a lot more study. Oh, it'll, it'll absolutely get more over time. I think it's, it's just, it's just waiting for the time to hit. I mean, when you, when you do find those bits and pieces that talk about when it was going through the film festivals, when it was finally released in 1990, like people noticed. It's just that it just, there wasn't any other system beyond film festivals back then to support it. And, you know, with DVD, it's, you know, when this came out on DVD, the internet was still pretty limited and the DVD run would have been pretty limited by how much, how hard it is to find. But I think, you know, with a Blu-ray release and the way the internet is now, things like Letterboxd and such, this is the kind of film that people will, they will sit up and they will pay attention and they will find this film. It's one of those films you can sort of understand how its uh, release was deliberately botched. So it, it, uh, you know, being released so long after it was completed and, you know, whatever kind of distribution uh, limitations it it had, uh, hopefully, you know, being out on Blu-ray, it's going to make it easier for people to discover and analyze and add perspectives and voices and interpretations because I, I think it is a film that's very open to a lot of that you, you can come away with many different things and read into certain details it's um, you know it's designed that way it's very carefully crafted yeah as you said you know if you're a fan of who's afraid of virginia wolf like there's plenty in here for you to chew over if you're a fan of like you to care kafkaesque thrillers that's here. If you're a fan of political thrillers, that's here. If you're a fan of experimental films, that's here. There's so many different inroads to this film, and it's made like as as you wonderfully pointed out. There's there's a lot of uh, era and country specific details, but they they're not necessary to understand what's going on. It is so just like for a film that is so complicated, it is so simple at the same time. Like you can just, you it's disorientating, as I said, but you still can go from beginning to end with a very basic knowledge with no idea of what the film is you're about to see is when I first saw it and still come away from being like, oh, yeah, I just had an experience. <laughs> I mean, in some ways, that's almost better than coming in with a lot of knowledge beforehand because it just dumps you right in the thick of things and it slowly dawns on you exactly what the circumstances are. And I, I think that can make it even more powerful. Yeah, it's definitely one of those films that's like, oh, I didn't see that steamroller sneaking up behind me. Oh, my foot's already under. It's over. Let's go. But I, I think also, like, the, the what I was saying before about some of the, the stuff relating to the technology and the within and stuff, there was something else that I read in that Robert Romanishan book that I thought just summed this up perfectly. And it was that he said that technology has the power to reveal the invisible, but should it attempt to eclipse it, to dominate it totally, then the character of human life will be will have been as thoroughly destroyed as life itself would be by the fires of the atomic bomb. 
And it's like, that's like, that's this film. It's like the mechanical devices of the ear in the service of a dehumanized government. They just annihilate human life. Like, this is not a film about human life or human freedoms or just, you know, the, the variables that happen as you go through your day to day. This is people trapped in a cage, which, you know, they even reference, like, there's that, there's a line, um, uh, about, you know, getting married and being trapped in a cage, which you could read as also being, you know, oh, here we go, about Ludwig toasts and quips that all, we all got married and, and the cage door shut which could also be seen as a reference between the marriage between Czechoslovakia and the Soviets and, you know, the, the quote-unquote marriage between them and the Nazis and all the, the, the Munich deal and things like that. All these times that Czechoslovakia had been forced to attach themselves to another country and the cage door shut. And it's just this, this, the mechanization of their lives through the, the, the listening capabilities of the government and the dehumanizing behavior of the government is no different to an atomic bomb going off because it just erases them. All right, guys, we're going to take a break and play maybe a trailer, maybe a clip. You never know with these films for next week's show. Peter. Všechno je jenom v tom, aby byl člověk takový, jaký je, aby se nepřetvařoval. Vy se mi líbíte a já po vás sloužím. <laughs> Proč to tady vůbec je? Tyhle sochy svaté. Proč tady nepostaví něco, co by oslavovalo život a ne tuhle mystiku? Kecám, že jo? Nekecám. Nekecáte, Helen. Máte úplně pravdu. Život je krásný. Ano, život je. Život je nádherný. Cizí město. A já jsem tu s vámi. Víte co? Mám tady v domě malou soukromou vinárnu. Pojďte. Pravá slovácká vinárna. That's right. We'll be back next week with a look at the joke. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-hosts, Ben and Martin. Ben, what is up down under? I have no idea. I'm having a bit of a hibernate year, I think, and just uh, I'm teaching myself knitting. It's really great. And Martin, what's been keeping you busy lately? Lots of stuff. Busy, busy, busy. Um, I'm over at flixwise.com, where I've got uh, Flixwise Canada podcast, talk about the pretty eclectic bunch of films who cover everything from rascal the raccoon to koni chikawa so that people might want to check out if they want to hear more of me at all i don't know why uh i have articles over at uh, pinksmoke.com including czech film and alexi german and maybe by the time people hear this i'll have a new article that i'm working on about a classic argentine film a short documentary in the works probably the best place for anyone who's curious to find more about my stuff is uh, on twitter at movie kessler on twitter where i tweet all my deepest darkest secrets to the world listen up here i hope you're all listening listen to me well thank you again guys for being on the show and thanks to everyone and i do mean everyone for listening please head on over to the website projectionboothpodcast.com where you can find out more about today's episode you'll also find links over to itunes where you can rate and review the show and to patreon where you can make a donation to the show donors get early access to every episode as long as i'm not running late every donation and every rating we get helps the projection booth take over the world
If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media, let's make some noise.